Uh, as you're opening there, I hope that as we read this, that we're paying attention, that we're paying attention to what the Bible says to us, because uh, it's really important that we interact with Scripture. That's how it's designed. That's how God's asked us to behave with it, to ask questions of what the biblical authors are writing and to wrestle with some things, to ask ourselves how that actually interacts with our own experiences. Um, so I hope that you're prepared to do that as we look through this. Uh, it's an, a particularly weird thing that we do here on a Sunday morning uh, compared to our other experiences in the sense that we're here in a room gathered, listen to someone talk about an ancient text. And you'll probably recognize that's not the classic experience of all the rest of our weeks. And sometimes when we're in a room listening to a person speak to us, it is kind of an exchange of goods. We're looking to get something out of it. So we're going to get an education to get a career, or uh, maybe there's some sage wisdom from one person in an area you want to grow with, and we want to get everything from them. Uh, and that's distinctly not what we're doing here this morning. Uh, there are things as we go through the book of James that will be practical advice, absolutely. There are things that we will learn about God and scripture through studying the book of James. But this time is not an exchange of goods. We're not choosing to come to church to sit in a space and exchange our time to get something out of it, to get a commodity out of it. Instead, our time gathered around God's word, and we're worshiping as we read his word. We're worshiping as we sing songs. We're worshiping as we give. We're worshiping even as we have cake together and interact with one another. The whole purpose of this gathering is to be drawn closer to Jesus and become more like him. So that was what makes this distinctly different. And I think that's good because as we start to read the, this book of James— we'll start to realize it's actually a letter from James. And it'll start to feel like we're reading somebody else's mail because distinctly that's what we're doing. And if we were just here to have some sort of exchange to, uh, to receive something, to get something out of it, it would, be, it would make more sense if we were re reading something that was written exactly to us to tell us about what we need. Or it might be even better just if we gave a bunch of practical advice uh, but we believe that this is God's word to us. And so as we read this, the God who inspired James to write a letter to these churches for the purpose of helping them to know the greatness of God, he is the same God who chose that this is going to be in our Bible for us to read and to push us closer to understanding the goodness and greatness of our God. And that is exciting. So that's where we're coming from, and I think it'd be great for us to, to launch into that. Um, before we read through it, though, I want to give some context for what this is all about. I mentioned this is a letter from James. Uh, we know this. It's got a, a return address and an actual address uh, where uh, we read that it's written to the churches, the Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes. Uh, who have been scattered all around, all around the Middle East. This is who it's to. And uh, we actually, we know some details and we don't know some details. But what we do know is that these are Christians uh, who 
are Jewish Christians. They're people who have followed the Jewish faith, the, the testimony, the story of God's goodness to them throughout all the Old Testament. And they've accepted Jesus as their Lord. They believe that when, like we do, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead on the third day to rescue us from our rebellion against him. And they believe this. But it was not easy to be a Christian in the first century. In those first years of the, the growing and birth of the new church, there's a lot of persecution. And many of the Christians who were in Jerusalem had to get out for their own safety, for this, the existence of their families. They need to get out. And James was based in Jerusalem. So this letter is written generally to all these different churches. And probably specifically as he's penning this letter, he knows that this is going out to some of the people he used to pastor in Jerusalem, some of the people he, he loves and he's caring about, and he's sending this out. All right, well, there's our address. I said there's a return address. This is from James. And as we read this letter, it'd probably be important to know who is this James. Well, this is actually Jesus' little brother, or his half-brother to be more specific. But this is uh, one of the, the children of Mary and Joseph uh, after Jesus was born who would have experienced growing up alongside Jesus. Uh, some people may be anxious about the fact, oh man, one of the key leaders in the church, of course he's part of the family. It's just his whole thing. Um, but bef before we go down that route, I just want you to do something with me. I want you to, if, if you grew up in a home with siblings, I want you to put your hand up, put it very high up. Okay. Now, remember that you put your hand up. Keep that key up. But I want you to keep your hand up if you grew up in a house where you were not the oldest. So you have older siblings. Yeah. What do you think it would take to convince you that your older sibling was God in human form? <laughs> is it just a little bit? Like, is it... Do you think it's even possible that your brain would even go there, that you would ever believe it? Or if you were to be convinced, you would have to really, really, really be convinced. James is no different. This is an experience that James had. We see a scene in the, the other stories of Jesus' life where it seems like his family, probably James included, went up to him when he was claiming a status of God himself and they went up to him kind of embarrassed for him and thought, oh no, like, Jesus, what, have, what are you doing? We should come home. Because uh, they thought, per, it seems like they thought he had lost his mind, perhaps. As probably would be our experience if our older sibling did the same thing. So James also needed a lot of convincing to know that this guy who he grew up with uh, was actually God. And he did have that moment, and probably one of the key moments we hear about uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where we read that Jesus, after he died and was buried and rose from the dead, we read that he visited many people, some big groups, some one-on-one, -on -one, but through that time, he visited his little brother, James, as the resurrected king. And uh, in that visit, something, if it did not change that moment, spurred on James to go, this this man, this Jesus, he is God, and I'm going to give the rest of my life to worship him. So he went on to become one of the key leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Paul kind of went out to the, the Greek churches 
and James stayed put in Jerusalem and was one of the key leaders there. And he actually became known as James the Just because he was such a deep worshiper of God. Uh, some accounts say that he actually lost feeling in his knees. Some say that his knees almost started to look like camel knees because he spent so long in prayer. Uh, and this is the type of person that he was. In fact, he would go on to die for this truth when he was questioned about whether or not he would die because he believes that Jesus is God. He said, that's worth dying for. That is a truth that I believe fully. Well, this is Jesus' brother, and we would think if he's writing a letter, if he wanted to be influential, what's the best street cred that you could get? Hello, this is a letter from James. Jesus, brother. <laughs> it's not what, it's not what he does. He actually says, uh, and I, this is a, a different person's translation of this. I think it's helpful. It says, this is James. And to God and to Jesus Christ, I'm a servant. And that's the credential that he gives. And there's a part of this, I think, which is James's humility, which is good. And he's, he's taking a lower status than maybe uh, he could to say, well, I'm serving them. They're higher. God is higher than me, and I am a servant of his. But I also think this is something that he wears as a badge of honor. And when he went to write this letter, he had the option of including his brotherness to Jesus. And you know what he said? You know what's more important? <laughs> Is my servantness of God. Uh, when somebody is the servant of someone really important, it's the important person who gives the status to the servant. Uh, if you are the personal assistant to the queen, <laughs> there is a sort of badge of honor to that because you're tied up with the person who you serve. And James said, you know what? The fact that I get to be tied up with the person of God as his servant, that is the most important thing about me. And I wear that with a badge of pride. If there was a credential I could put on this letter that would make people listen to this, it would be that I am God's servant. And that's what he does. And that is exciting. So with that in mind, why don't we read this first part of James. And this morning we're going to be going from verses 1 to 18. And this is a little bit of reading that we're doing, but we take the time to do this because more important than anything that I'm saying to you is the fact that this is the word of God and he's chosen to speak to us through it. So let's read together. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, the ones spread her out, greetings, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. 
because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown up, brings forth death. So don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or no shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Father, uh, you are God and we are so excited to be here. Um, honored to be here as we study your word, and we pray that you'd teach us what it means. Lord, you are its author, and you know every one of our hearts, and as we come to you and say that you are boss, that you are in charge, and you're our shepherd, uh, we want to follow you well, and so would you guide each of our hearts. I pray that you'd make us uncomfortable in places that we've been too comfortable, and that you'd comfort us in places that are difficult. We trust you, and we know that this is your time and not ours. And so we ask that you would uh, continue to show us your goodness and your greatness, and that we would be driven into your arms, knowing that you are steadfast and secure. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Count it all joy. Um, my mom always shares this memory that she has growing up, probably on a day like today, uh, where she'd come home after school. Uh, this is when she was really little. Uh, that might become clear later. Uh, but she would come home, you'd walk from the cold and walk inside, and oh, you get kind of bathed in the warmth of walking into your home. And not only would she be bathed in the warmth, but just the smell of cooking bacon just like washed over her. So, oh, you can hear it sizzling on the frying pan. This is a good day. Uh, mixed in with that, the aroma of like sauteed onions and butter, oh. And she's like, this, what joy must be coming that there is this food awaiting me. This is delicious food. Only to walk around the corner to discover that liver and onions, again, were on the menu. And the bacon and onions that were so joyous, we're just going to get mixed all together with this main course of liver. How disappointing. And that's sort of what the first line of James is like. Uh, I've been told that in the original, it actually is even worse, that he actually delays it longer. He leaves us in suspense, uh, where he goes, greetings, everyone. Friends, consider it great joy. Dear, dear brothers and sisters, count it fully as joy, and you're reading, yes, great, what encouragement is coming down the line, there's some things I get to rejoice in, fantastic, James, just lay it on me. When you face trials of many kinds, what? That's not joyful, what a disappointment. 
Here we thought James was going to give us some encouragement and how he says, well, no, just rejoice in your trials. And it feels like maybe he's just trying to trick us into eating liver. <laughs> uh, I think when we come to this, consider it joy when you face trials. It's easy to feel like what James is telling us to do is just slap on a smile. Even no matter what you feel, just like leave it at the door smile, pretend things are good, and that's what we're supposed to do. And maybe if you've been in community for a while, or you've known people for, a while, for any length of time, you've come across someone who maybe has gone through something that you would imagine is really tough, and they don't even seem to be phased by it. Or perhaps they've just got a smile that maybe feels pasted onto you, and maybe, maybe that's just your own eyes, but I know sometimes I can feel a little bothered by that. I'll come up and I was like, well, they seem so happy, and I would be very sad in that point. And it doesn't seem like sadness or bitterness or anything are emotions that they have access to. And so I either get bothered because I feel like I'm not good enough of a Christian because I don't feel that way, or that maybe they're not good enough of a Christian because they're not being vulnerable enough to show their emotions. And it just leaves me in this angst of either side. And I don't know if that's your experience. And James asks us the question, or we ask James the question, is this what you are asking us to do? Just find a silver lining and move on. I don't think so. Um, and he's going to, throughout this letter, give us a picture of the hope that we're looking for as God forms us into people who are whole. He says that the reason we can rejoice is because our, the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance, when it has its full effect, will make us mature and complete, lacking nothing. And the theme that we're going to see over and over and over again in the book of James, and you'll hear us talk about this a lot, is that God's purpose is to mature us and make us fully complete. And what he'll do all throughout this book is point out areas where we're inconsistent with what we believe and what we say and say that's not God's desire. His desire is consistency and wholeness, that we would be true followers of him. That's why we've called this series Authentic Faith in Action, uh, because that's what we're being driven toward. Uh, so we're going to keep coming back to this idea of being full and complete as God forms us to do that. Um, but he's making us more and more like himself, and God himself, what is he like? He is steadfast. He doesn't shift or sway. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the most reliable entity that has ever existed. Uh, and he's making us more and more like him. And he'll, through this passage, James is going to point to God's steadfastness as the encouragement that we can come back to. And he's doing that through a few different ways. So the first one is that because God is steadfast and true, we can believe in him confidently. Uh, so James kind of ties this in, and what he says is, our goal is to not lack anything. So he says, well, what's an example of something that we lack? Wisdom. Wisdom is something, is a theme. If you've been around scripture for any amount of time, you've probably recognized the theme of wisdom. It's everywhere. And that's because the very first thing that humanity did to rebel was reject God's wisdom. He gave them a question in the form of a tree and said, will you trust your own wisdom that you know what's best? Or 
Will you trust God's wisdom that he knows what's best? And Adam and Eve looked at this tree, uh, and they looked at the fruit, and they decided, in my wisdom, this looks like good fruit. I saw that it's good. They took, and they ate. God's wis- my wisdom should be priority, and God's should take a back seat. And so one of the conditions of humanity is all of us, if we're lacking anything, all of us are lacking wisdom. Uh, and we need wisdom to even know what other things we're lacking. So he uses this as an example. One of the things you might be lacking is wisdom. So ask God, and he's generous, and he's going to give good gifts to those who ask, and you can be confident in that. Uh, now he's going to talk a little bit about doubt, because I think, and I think this is important for us to, to lean into, because I think we live in a culture, especially in Canada, where, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the, the chief sins that you can do, the worst thing you can do in our culture is impose on somebody else. If you just think about any conversation you've probably had, even this morning, the number one thing, well, I don't want to impose myself. I don't want to ask anything from you. Oh, I just don't want to be an imposition. Don't go out of your way. Oh, that's just such an effort uh, to the point that we just kind of reject everything from around us and we view it as a sign of weakness. The mantra is, God helps those who help themselves, which is not actually a verse in the Bible. Um, And instead, uh, we view God through that perspective, and we think of God in the same way we think of culture. And so we don't ask God of anything, because we maybe assume that what God would rather us have is to work enough that we get wisdom on our own, and then God can look at us and go, well done. I didn't have to get involved. Good for you. It's not what James is telling us to do. He says we should ask, and he is generous, and he doesn't give to us. One translation says grudgingly. He doesn't hold a grudge when we ask him, but he does so generously, and that is encouraging. And then he's echoing what Jesus even said in Matthew 7, where he says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. He compares himself to a parent, and he says, parents, if your child asks you for fish, are you going to give them a snake? Or if they ask for bread, are you going to give them a, a rock? If we're going outside and your child, I know they rarely do, but if they ask for their raincoat, instead are you going to ki- give them sunscreen? No, as good parents, even as people who are not like God, who we all have issues, and even still we know how to give good things to our children. And he says, how much more does God know how to give good things? He's generous. He's not giving grudgingly. Uh, So we're supposed to ask confidently. But then there's this weird part next where he says, but you should do so in faith. Because one who doubts, they're like a wave at sea. Uh, If you imagine going on the ferry in the middle of the water and you point to the person beside you and try and point out a specific wave, You'll be there for a while, (laughs) because it's there and it's not, and you can't even tell the distinction. It has no form, no substance, no security. And so he tells us we shouldn't be like that, so we shouldn't doubt. Now, there is an error that we can take with this verse, and many probably have have taken this this viewpoint, where what this is saying, that the error is that we think that we just need to believe hard enough. We kind of have a Disney theology of it. 
that if we just believe, then it'll happen. We just need a little bit of faith, trust, and pixie dust. And that's what God requires to, to do what we want him to do. Uh, you just need to believe it'll happen, and then it will. But that's not true. And it's a good thing that that's not true. Because can you imagine how frustrating, how disheartening it would be if in order to get God's good gifts, we just had to try hard enough and do good enough. And there are many, um, perhaps some of you in this room have a, in your life have been told that the suffering that you're going through is actually a result of you not believing in God enough. And you, if only you had believed harder or had more faith, well, then he would have done what you'd asked him to do. That sounds like what we're trying to do is twist God's arm. And he's not a begrudging giver. He gives generously. So this is the opposite of what James is actually saying. Uh, He is not saying you just need to do enough believing to make God do what he said he's going to do. Because God is steadfast and secure. We don't twist his arm to get anything. But on the other hand, uh, we can be so far on this side of wanting to do enough believing to make God do what we want him to do. And we've seen that. And we don't want to be that person. So on the other side, we swing to this side and start praying with so many asterisks that anybody who listened wouldn't actually believe that we believed what we were talking about. So I'll pray for someone's healing with so many caveats, so many outs for God, that if he doesn't answer our prayer, he won't be embarrassed. We don't want to embarrass God if he doesn't answer our prayer. And so we'll, we'll pray so many, uh, well, if you're willing, but maybe you're not actually willing uh, and probably you won't heal. Uh, probably you won't give me what I asked for. But if you want to, but you prob- I don't want to impose that anybody listening would say, I don't know that they actually believe. And probably we, we don't actually believe. Both sides are wrong. As C.S. Lewis says that sometimes the, the devil sends things in pairs where our dislike of one forces us to the other side. <laughs> and That's great, because if we're on either side, if we're not actually centered on who Jesus is, we're not going to be in the right place. So we don't want to be in either place. And what James is telling us is that we should be focused on the center, on the consistent character of God, that he is a generous giver, that he loves to give good gifts to his children, and we better believe that he does. So we shouldn't act as if He's never going to give us good things by not praying confidently, not asking or believing confidently. And we also shouldn't think that we're trying to earn him and force his way to get him to do good things. We should believe that because God is steadfast and true, that we can ask boldly. We can also boast securely. So the next section of this is... Again, talking about God's steadfastness and where we should find the security of our identity in him. Uh, He talks, he says, he's talking to people of different statuses, and he says, those who are lowly, those people who probably in this context were poor, socially outcast, should boast in uh, their status in Christ. And those who are rich should boast, they should get excited about their humiliation. We're going to talk about Uh, the rich and the poor, quite a lot through the book of James. So I won't go into a lot here. And we've laid some of the groundwork now. I hope you're noticing a theme. God is steadfast. And so we should realize and 
be consistent with believing he's steadfast. What he's addressing is we can use our fluctuating, unsteadfast circumstances to influence what we actually believe about ourselves. And so the number of followers you have on social media, the amount of money you have in your bank account, whether your home looks like Pinterest, uh, all these different external circumstances we can put our full identity in. And James is essentially saying, uh, he gives this metaphor of flowers in a field. He's saying that's about as ludicrous as instead of backing your, your money in gold, for example, buying all your RRSPs in cut flowers. They're going to fade away. It's not stable. It's not a stable source. Our circumstances, no matter how we, we, many of us went through or observed 2008, and when everything crashed and you found that the, so putting our stability in any sort of circumstances, no matter how secure it is, is not a reliable place to secure ourselves to. Well, who is? The steadfast king of kings. Where you say, rich person, you serve the God who came in human form to rescue us, a rebel creature of yours. There's a, a humility in serving a homeless savior. And if you're poor, if you're poor in status, you can boast in the excitement that God has elevated you and you are a child of the king of kings. We find our stability in him so we can boast securely in that. Because he is steadfast and he is true. He does not change. All right, let's continue to verse 12. We're going to return now to the idea of trials. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, under difficult circumstances. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Um, so at, uh, at the beginning, and we kind of, I briefly, well, I, I kind of did go over it. <laughs> the, at the beginning, we it didn't address the, the elephant of the room of whether or not, like how we can count it all joy in the midst of trials. Um, and we're returning to that. Because in, in as much as we say we should count it all joy as trials, it still might feel like liver. And we may have to like suck it up and eat it because somebody told, it was, told us it was good for us. Um, so we're, we're back at that. And I know we're still probably a little unsatisfied. It's like, okay, Kevin, yeah, but I still can't count it joy. It's really hard to get that emotion there. We're back. Uh, and I think this next section from verse 12 to 16 will hopefully continue to frame what he's getting at. So he's making us more like himself. He's making us more whole, more spiritually authentic, and showing us the areas that we're, we're not like that. And so he says, again, thinking back to trials, he says, congratulations, blessed are you, if you stay steadfast, leaning on God's character, when you're going through very difficult circumstances, when you're going through trials. And he gives another reason. Why? Well, because if you stay steadfast, leaning on God's strength, you will receive a crown of life. That's exciting. <laughs> this is a part of the reward that he's giving that we should look toward. Uh, and we are 
going to talk about this reward in a minute. But before we do, I want to frame this next section because we're talking about trials, and then all of a sudden he switches into temptations, and you're like, what's, what's the link there? Are these the same things? Is a trial the same as a temptation? Are they very different? Uh, that's a great question. Thank you for, for asking it. In, in the, again, somebody has told me at least that in the original language, this is a, a play on words as well, where it's meant to think of these things as very, very related to one another. Because one thing that happens when our circumstances change, that is the ripe environment for temptation to arise. Almost every time we face a trial, along with the trial comes a temptation to grab our own wisdom as the solution for the trial. So in the midst of loneliness, we might instead pursue a relationship that's not healthy. In the middle of our grief, we might decide to say that God actually doesn't love me anymore. Uh, in the midst of poverty, we might decide we're going to cheat the system. Maybe in the midst of having enormous wealth and power, your temptation is to abuse that, to take advantage of other people. Because our circumstances really matter, and they're going to affect the temptations that come alongside of them. I find because it's important to be aware of this. Uh, there's been a helpful acronym that's helped me, which is the word HALT, like stop. Uh, and what it says is these are, it's an acronym for the circumstances that often lead us to bad places, often lead us to temptation. Uh, and those circumstances, when we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're lonely, and when we're tired. When one or all of those are present, I know in my life, this is bad news. I could be in trouble. <laughs> That's when all, everything about me that seems to be great following God all of a sudden seems unstable. And those are the times that for me, I need to call my friend, say, hey, I'm hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. This could be bad. So help me lean on the steadfastness of Christ. And we should be, I think, so aware of how our circumstances lead us into choosing the wrong type of wisdom that like, we should be so aware of it, it should almost start to feel like a spidey sense, you know? You should kind of get to the end of your day and go, you know what, I'm pretty, I'm pretty lonely today. I should be careful. I might be in enemy territory. I should be aware of what's going on, maybe bring some people in, uh, spend some time in prayer, foreshadowing the fact that you might face temptation there. But temptation in and of itself, James says, it's when the desires inside of us, the, the desires that we have, those kind of well up. And the things that we want, perhaps loneliness, we want community, but they get redirected and we go to the wrong thing. The desires that we have, the temptations that we have in and of themselves are not the sin, but they give birth to sin. And that sin, when it gets grown up, kills us because we go so far away from who God is, who is the source of life, it's the inevitable consequence of following our own wisdom. So we want to be alert when those come up, and we want to be steadfast. And the only way we can remain steadfast is in the one who has conquered temptation and sin and death on our behalf, who is Jesus. So earlier, though, 
we've read that trials lead to being fully mature. And now we read that being steadfast under trials, those put us in a trajectory where we get the crown of life. So there's so many good things that are apparently linked to trials. And elsewhere in scripture, it actually says that there are times, not all the times we face difficult circumstances, but there are times when God does put us to the test. He put uh, Abraham to the test, for example. Um, and he does this because he, is, he loves us and he's forming us. And in the same way that uh, if you are a good programmer, you want to run your program at its high capacity to make sure that if there's an error in it, before you send it out, you know where those things are so you can fix it, so you can make it whole, so you can make it perfect, you can make it right. God cares about us to that degree. He wants to make us whole. Uh, if you are a teacher, there's a reason that you presumably give tests to your students, and hopefully that's to see uh, what areas they might need to reflect on that they need to grow in, uh, to see where they are, to help you teach them better, to, to grow as, as these ways, to bring to fullness and completeness the student. So God sometimes does bring testing into our life to make us more like him. But this can be a tricky point, though, because if God can bring us through trials, does that mean he's also tempting us? Because if temptations are linked to trials and trials can lead to a good thing, is God involved in our temptation? And James emphatically says, no. Because the temptation comes from our own desires inside of us. We're swimming in a world that's full of sin and we have desires that are inconsistent with God. But God is perfect. He can't be tempted because he has no desire to evil, to do evil. And it would be a pretty evil thing to seduce someone into temptation or see if they can stand that sort of test. That's not what God does. He allows us to go through trials to strengthen us. And we are going to talk about that now. Because he says, James does, don't be deceived. Don't think that God's bringing you with the intent for you to fail or to see if you're going to fail. Every perfect gift, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And in him there is no variation and nor shadow due to change. He is steadfast. Because of him, he brought us forth. We're the results of his truth and we're the first results of his truth. His restoringness, he's bringing a kingdom so because he is steady and true, we can trust that what he's doing when we're in the midst of trial is something good. And this is where we get to think about, well, how do I ignite that joy in me? Because I still don't naturally feel it when I face a trial. Um, I'm going to switch metaphors from eating liver to exercise, which probably has more in line with the crown of life. Because the crown of life, we kind of think crown, ah, I love material things. It's probably a very wealthy crown full of gold and gems. But this is probably actually a reward for completing a race. So the idea of exercise and training is very important in the New Testament. And this way, I think it's important for us to view trials in the sense of weights, of weight training, of resistance training. To grow... It's, it's painful to sometimes go through those things, to grow our muscles, but it's for a good purpose. And we won't grow without those things. 
God is shaping our character. Okay, and so I want you to follow this flow of thought. God says that our character and our perseverance, our fullness, our full maturity comes about when we've gone through trials. So I don't know what God's plan is in the eternity future when we are with him, but right now the main way God makes us like him is by allowing us to go through trials, to have resistance training, to grow our character. When we meet our, in the new heaven and new earth, there's no more tears, no more sadness, no more groaning, no more complaining. There's, there isn't, we don't have dumbbells anymore. And again, I don't know what God's plan is. I'm, I'm glad I don't because I'm excited to see what it is. But right now, he says what we bring into heaven, the treasures that we bring into heaven have a lot to do with our character. I think maybe we get really excited about thinking of our treasure in heaven as a bunch of material stuff. We're like, oh, good, I get more stuff. Um, I think the, the reality is, is the thing that God cares most about, that he shows that we actually carry with us when we go to meet with him is the character that we bring so we can rule and reign with him. And if trials are the way that he has decided to help us grow to be like him, if trials are the way to have the best thing available to us, which is God's character, do you see how maybe that might spark some joy? Not to say that the trials, we come to it and go, great, another trial. But knowing that when we face a trial, we can look at it in the face and say, this sucks. But God could have taken away this opportunity for me to grow to be like him, and he has loved me enough to give me the best possible thing, which is the opportunity to grow a character, which is the best possible thing that could ever exist for me. And I think when we come to this and we go, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. And in that way, we'll be lacking in nothing from the God who gives good gifts generously. This is some leaning on Jesus that we need to have that well up inside of us. But I hope there's a spark inside of us that can see that when we face a trial. Father, um, you are the good and perfect God. Lord, you do not shift and move side to side. There is no shadow upon you. You are a mighty fortress. Father, a bulwark never failing. You're consistent. Because you are consistent, Lord, we can boldly ask knowing that you are who you say you are and you will do what you've said you will do. We can boast in you because you are consistent. You are the most reliable thing that we could ever boast in. That we can persevere faithfully knowing that your good plan is to develop us into people who look like you. And that is the most important thing that could ever happen. So Lord, I pray that in the midst of our trials, uh, we would also feel your comfort. God, you don't beat us over the head with this, but you tell us that you are with us that you are a friend and you are the suffering friend who has walked alongside of us, even in the midst of our suffering. Lord, you're helping us as we grow in this way. So Lord, I pray that for those who are suffering today, um, 
that you'd remind them that you are comforting them there alongside and that you have not ignored their where they are, Lord, but you are with them um, and you are not letting this opportunity be wasted, but you're drawing them closer to you. Pray for those who are not in a time of suffering, Lord, that you would really impress on us right now in the light the things that we need when we're in the darkness uh, and that we'd be so ready to see the joy in the midst of suffering, uh, that when suffering comes, and it will, we would run to you, thankful that you are forming in us a character like yours. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.